This week is going to be Lag Baomer, the 33rd of the Omer. And there are a lot of secrets revealed through the Torah uh, that we focus on Lag Baomer. Um, there are a few major characters. The most important character associated with Lag Baomer is Rashbi, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And the Torah that he revealed, the Torah of Sod, the, to, the secret side of the Torah, the hidden side of the Torah, Torah Tanistar. And the, you know, the, the Torah, it's interesting because, you know, there's a Torah that never really got to the English-speaking world. Meaning, America has the Brisket Torah, the uh, Hasidut, the kind of Haredi, Lithuanian Haredi Torah, all of that exists in the United States. Also the, you know, neo-Orthodox, maybe it could be argued that Rabbi Shimson Raphael Hirsch's neo-Orthodox movement merged with the Brisker movement and became what we have. It's not a question, no, it's on Hasidut, it's Kabbalah. Sometimes it's something very specific. But it could be that modern orthodoxy in America today is, a, is slightly a derivative of Rav Shimshon Raphael Hirsch, the, the neo-orthodox movement, and the brisket Torah of Rav Soloveitchik. Maybe we can call the Rav Hirsch camp the modern Haredi camp. But there's a Torah that never really made it there. And that's the Torah that went through Rabbi Yudah Levi, the Ramban, the Ramchal, the Maharal of Prague, the Gorme Vilna, Rav Kuk, and came here. It's a Torah that focuses not just on the spiritual, but how we express our deepest spiritual concepts in the physical material world, even through political historic events. You know, the flag of Israel, it's one of the only flags in the entire Middle East that was created by an indigenous people as an expression of our own unique identity. The majority of flags in the Middle East are derivatives of a flag that was created by Mark Sykes, a British colonial officer. They almost all look the same, the Jordanian flag, Palestinian flag, right? They all look pretty much the same. Our flag is one of, not the only, but one of the only flags created by a native people as an expression of its own identity, as an expression of its own culture, of its own civilization. The blue and white, the color of the strings that Hebrew men have worn on our garments, right? for thousands of years. The two blue stripes symbolize the two bodies of water on either sides of our homeland. You could interpret that as either the Mediterranean and the Jordan, or you could interpret that as the Nile and the Euphrates. But either way, on either side of our homeland is two bodies of water expressed through two blue stripes on our flag. We have in the middle a six-bladed shield to commemorate David Melech, probably our greatest national leader, 
But the way in which this six-bladed shield appears on our flag is as two triangles, one pointing up, one pointing down, right? Interconnected, showing that we believe our civilization has always looked at the world in such a way as the material and the spiritual being interconnected. Not like Christianity, chas v'shalom, which sees the spiritual as holy and the material as profane. And the more we separate from the material, the more we separate from the physical, the holier we become. That's Christianity. And that's, by the way, why Christianity is idolatry. It's not just that they have a guy on a cross that people bow to. It's the whole, conceptually the fact that they separate the spiritual, the holy, from the physical material world. Because conceptually it's wrong. The whole point of creation is to take this world. Yeah, conceptually that's a problem. Like that view is problematic. Yes, Allah Kliyahosa. Meaning the idea, I mean Rav Kook talks about it quite a bit. You could see it, uh, I mean it's, it's all over Rav Kook's writings, but uh, the easiest, I guess, you know, simplest place to see the explanation is probably Orot Milchama. Hey, the fifth chapter of Orot Milchama. The idea of how, where that leads the world. Where that leads mankind. It leads mankind away from truth. We have a mission in history. We have a mission to bring all of creation to the awareness of Hashem as His timeless, ultimate reality without end that creates all, sustains all, empowers all, and loves all. That's our purpose, that we're partners in creation. And it happens through the story of our people. Like that's how mankind comes to this realization. It's not like we have to get up and give speeches at the United Nations or we have to coerce the world into believing something they're not really ready to believe. It's through the story, right? Sometimes you might even see a movie or read a book that brings you to a certain conceptual paradigm shift. Right? Because of the story, because of the characters, because of the events. Maybe because of the plot twists, because of the conclusion. That suddenly you think in a different way than you thought before. It's powerful, a powerful story does that. So we say three times a day in the Shemona in the Amidah, that Hashem recalls the chesed of our ancestors, the Avot, and brings a redeemer to their descendants, the Jewish people, for the sake of His name for the sake of how his ideal is perceived in this world as manifest through the Jewish people in history. Through the story of Israel, all of mankind will come to understand that there is a creator who is also this infinite whole that we're all a part of, that we're all part of one organism, that we're all one, and that one is beyond us. And it's through the story of Israel that mankind comes to that realization and starts to behave Accordingly, right now, the peoples of the world, it's like a, an orchestra. Each nation, each people is like an instrument. We spoke about this before. You know, the flute wants to be louder than the trombone, the trombone wants to be louder than the clarinet, the clarinet wants to be louder than the drum. They're all competing. They all want to express themselves because they all have something to give mankind. They all have a drive inside to express themselves. And sometimes to fully express themselves, they feel they have to conquer more land or exploit somebody else, be louder, more dominant than their neighbor. Israel's function, we have nivua. 
Our function is to be the conductor. Our function is to be the conductor that helps each instrument, each nation, to fully express itself in a way that complements the other instruments. So we have harmony in the world. We have a symphony, no more cacophony. No more nation trying to write the prophet Yeshua tells us that nations won't live, you know, lift sword against nation or they won't learn war anymore. Why? Not because they decided it's not in their interest anymore, but because they see how unnatural it's become to them. That they realize, they recognize, they're aware of our innate oneness, in our innate unity. And to war against each other is as ridiculous as for my hand to take revenge against my other hand if I cut it by accident. Right? That's the example brought in the Yerushalmi. Right? That, uh, that's speaking specifically about Israel, the understanding that we're all one. That all of Israel is one giant spiritual organism that shines into this world through millions of bodies in space and time called Jews. And that we're all really one. And for one Jew to take revenge, right? In Parshat Kedoshim, we're prohibited from taking revenge against another Jew. Why? Not because revenge is wrong. In many cases, we have a mitzvah to take revenge against other nations. But because revenge is unnatural to us, internally, because we're really one. Now on a higher level, on a deeper level, all of mankind is one. There's levels. And that's the level we have to bring the world to. And right now, why, and the obvious question is, well, why is revenge okay? Why is revenge sometimes a mitzvah against other nations if we're really one with them too? Right? Nobody's thinking that? Right, because you have to destroy the opposing forces. It's exactly it. Because Hashem puts um, what we call the sitra achra into the world, like the forces of evil into the world. And that force of evil has a function, it has a mission. It's part of the story. Meaning there's a story playing out. All of history is a story, and it's a great story. And Israel's the protagonist of the story because embedded within Israel is the potential for all of mankind to reach the goal of history, to reach the happy ending of the story. Essentially, it's a decent metaphor. <laughs> but the story's only good if there are people trying to tackle you. Right. Meaning, if you're playing a game of football <gasps> and your job is to carry that football to the end zone, right. that story is a pretty boring story if nobody's trying to stop you. Right. So, Hashem puts forces of evil into the world on purpose with a function. The, what we call the Sitra Akhra, to try and stop us, to challenge us, and to force us to overcome. And we learned that this was Mitzrayim, right? Mitzrayim was like the, the embodiment of this, because sometimes this force of evil manifests itself as actual nations in the world. Sometimes it's Yetzirah, I mean, it, it comes in many forms. But Mitzrayim was the first time it really came as a nation in history. In Mitzrayim, Egypt was like the primary expression of this force of evil in the world. And then later, if anybody learns uh, Ner Mitzvah, the Maharal of Prague's uh, Sefer on Chanukah, the Maharal talks about four kingdoms that come to usurp our role. They come to take... Babylonian, Persia, Revolution, Rome. Right. Babylon... Babylon... Persia, Greece, Rome. The Maharal derives it from not only the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and Sefer Daniel, but also from the first few
few psukim in the, in Sefer Bereshit, right? That you have these four kingdoms, which are each derivatives of Egypt, right? Egypt is the Av. They're all Toledot. They're all derivatives. And each one, why are these nations important? They're not our only enemies. What about Amalek? What about the Plishtim? What about all the other nations we fight uh, in, in history? The Moavim, right? The Amonim. Like, we have all these enemies. If you look at the Tanakh, there are all these different peoples we fight. The Knanim. So why are these nations specifically singled out? Because they're the nations that usurp our role. That not only try to stop us from fulfilling our mission. Remember, the enemy is the, is the nation or the actor. The enemy is the actor that tries to prevent us from fulfilling our mission. We could have lots of people who hate Jews and want to hurt Jews. That doesn't necessarily make them the enemy. Like Yair Stern during World War II makes it a very clear distinction between the Tzorer and the Oyev, between the persecutor and the enemy. And he says that the Nazis, the Germans, are the Tzorer. They hate Jews. They want to hurt Jews. The Oyev are the British. Why are the British the Oyev? Why are the British the enemy? Because the British are standing in the way of the Jewish mission. Like meaning if we all have a mission in life. And sometimes our mission is clear, sometimes our mission is not clear. We each have individual missions and collectively we have the mission of the Jewish people. Now sometimes our mission isn't clear, but there's one thing that's clear. You know that if you were born outside the land of Israel, part of your personal mission is to make Aliyah. Right? No brainer. Part of your personal mission is to choose to leave and come back to your homeland. And sometimes there are people in our lives who love us, want to be close to us, want us to be safe, want us to be financially secure, and they try to stop us from making Aliyah. Doesn't mean they hate us. It doesn't mean they want to hurt us, God forbid. The opposite, they love us. But they're the enemy. And they need to be fought. They need to be neutralized. Not, obviously, if their parents or, you know, grandparents, people care about us, should be respectful, should be with love, should be with compassion. But this is, the, you know, they're the enemy. So the British are the enemy because the British are occupying our land, preventing Jews from coming home. And the Germans are the Tzorer. They hate us. They want to persecute us. They might want to kill the Jews. Although in your ears, to be fair... Yair was killed a month after the Vansi conference. So meaning the Nazis hadn't decided on the final solution until a month before Yair was killed. When Yair made this distinction, there was no Nazi policy to kill the Jews, there was a Nazi policy to find a country to take the Jews. So Yair says, wait a minute, they want to get all the Jews out of Europe. I want all the Jews home in Palestine. The British are occupying Palestine, and the Germans are fighting the British, and the British are fighting the Germans. Who should I align with? The Germans or the British? Maybe I can get the Germans to send us their Jews. We can find a place to put all the Jews of Europe in their homeland, in Eretz Israel, and we'll even have help fighting the British to free our land. That's very impressive political thinking. People who don't, people without political sophistication look at that and say, oh my God, he wanted to make a deal with the Nazis. But come on, stop for a moment. Actually analyze the the brilliance. It didn't work. 
because for a number of reasons. First of all, within the Nazi movement, there was a machloket. There was a debate. There were different forces fighting over what we're going to do with the Jews. And ultimately, the pragmatists who just wanted to find a country to take the Jews lost, and the ideologues who wanted to kill the Jews, take them out of the world, won. But there was a debate taking place within the, uh, amongst those who made German policy. Also, the British thwarted it. And the British used the fact that Yair was planning to do this to present him as a traitor to the entire Jewish people. And most of the Jewish people at the time were not very politically sophisticated and weren't open-minded enough to really ask, what's Yair doing here? Because they anyway saw him as a dangerous person. So instead of actually looking at what he saw, they said, ah, he's a traitor, he's the enemy. But we have to take that model to say there's a Tzorer and there's the Oyev. There's the persecutor and there's the enemy. And we need to differentiate between the two. So the enemy is he who stands in the way of our mission. So the Maharal explains in Ner Mitzvah that there are four nations who are the enemy in that they're standing in the way of our mission and they're trying to usurp our role. They're trying to usurp our identity. Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome. And Rome, of course, evolves. Right? The Roman exile evolves. Rome becomes the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church essentially dominates Europe. Like the civilization, Western civilization, is European in nature. I mean, is a Catholic in nature. And, of course, that then spreads when the Europeans come and conquer uh, the Americas from the indigenous people and commit all sorts of crimes and atrocities against the natives of the Americas. Mm -hmm. They build a civilization over there in the New World that's also built on this Roman, Edomite, Christian base. And that's the Roman Empire today is basically Western civilization. The Roman Empire today is Europe and the United States. And so the Torah that we focus on, Lagba Omer, you know, it was the Torah. We have to think for a moment who were the teachers of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? What is this Torah? The teachers of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai had two main teachers, two main teachers. Number one, Rabbi Kiva. Who is Rabbi Akiva? Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is the Gadol Hador, the giant, the, the giant of the Tanaim. Right? We go by the Lacha of Rabbi Akiva, whenever there's a Machlokan. And he's also the spiritual leader of the Bar Kokhba revolt. He's also an anti Roman revolutionary. I have a theory, there's no way to prove this. But I have a theory, could be true, that Rabbi Akiva, before he became Rabbi Akiva, was an anti-Roman guerrilla during the Great Revolt against Rome. You know, the war from 66 to 70, the, the war that Josephus records for us. And we learned that Rabbi Akiva, before he started learning Torah at the age of 40, hated the Chachamim. Bite them like a donkey, right. Now what's the difference between a donkey bite and a dog bite? Dog bites through the skin. Donkey bites through the bone. 
Meaning Rabbi Akiva hated the Rabbanim, hated the Chachamim, hated the Tanaim. But nobody back then really hated the rabbis. It wasn't like today with the uh, with the media, and, you know. It, it, t- today you have people, Litzareno, unfortunately in Israeli society, you have people who actually like hate rabbis and are educated to hate rabbis. Okay? People who don't feel comfortable among rabbis. But back then, that didn't really exist. Back then, the average person had respect for the Rabbanim, had kavod, honor for the Rabbanim, and uh, even if they were just like simple farmers, they would say, you know, they, they loved the Chachamim. So what made Akiva different? Why does he hate the Chachamim? And I think it was because he blamed them for betraying Yerushalayim. He blamed specifically Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai, and in fact, in the Gemar Gitin, he attacks Rabban Yochanan ben Zakai on this issue. But then he becomes Rabbi Akiva. Then he starts to learn Torah. And then not only does he start to learn Torah, but he becomes the giant of, uh, of his generation, of, of several generations. And what does he do? He goes up to Mount Scopus with three of his friends. They look down from Mount Scopus onto the Temple Mount and they see foxes coming out of the Holy of Holies. The most sacred place in the world, the Evanishtiyah, where creation came from, where creation evolved from, right? came out of. And the rabbis begin to cry. Rabbi Akiva begins to laugh. And they say, why are you crying? He says, why are you laughing? I mean, they say, why are you laughing? He says, why are you crying? So we're crying because we see that foxes are coming out of our holiest places. Right? There's a nivua we have that tells us this would happen and it came true. And Rabbi Akiva, why are you laughing? And he says, Rabbi Akiva says, I'm laughing because I know if that nivua came true, also the Nivua that says old people will once again laugh in the streets of Jerusalem will come true. And they say, Rabbi Akiva, you've consoled us. But what maybe they should have said is, Rabbi Akiva, there's a time to laugh and a time to cry. Right now, foxes are coming out of our holiest places, we should cry. And when old people are once again laughing in the streets of Jerusalem, we can laugh. But for now, we're supposed to cry. Rabbi Akiva was able to laugh because Internally, his soul was revolting. It was revolting against the very idea that foxes were coming out of our holiest places, that the temple was destroyed, that Rome rules Judea. And because his soul was revolting on the inside, he was able to laugh on the outside. And then he goes and he does two things. He goes and he buys his wife, Rachel, a piece of jewelry, called Yerushalayim Shel Zahav. And then he does something else. He leads the Bar Kokhba revolt. A revolution against the Roman Empire to free our land and to bring reality, the material, historical, political reality, to the reality that Rabbi Akiva was already experiencing on the inside. No, I don't understand. No, he's revo- no more than that. In his his soul was already not accepting the reality. 
not accepting the reality that Rome rules our country, and therefore he was not going to accept it in, you know, in the character he played either. The soul is the actor, Akiva is the character he plays. The soul couldn't accept the reality that Rome rules Judea, and therefore the character that he plays, Akiva, goes and revolts against Rome. Right? And we fast forward a couple thousand years. The nations declare independence. The nation of Israel declares independence in 1948. British, we, we beat the British. Rabbi Akiva's revolution didn't work. The Bar Kokhba revolt is defeated. And there are several other attempts throughout the centuries between Bar Kokhba and Rabbi Akiva and Herzl. There's several attempts at Jewish liberation. There's several Jewish attempts to free our land and restore Jewish sovereignty. And they all fail. Throughout the centuries, almost every century, there's one or two failed Jewish liberation movements. And then finally, the Lechi, the Lochamech Herut Yisrael, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, succeed in dragging the Egun Lumi and even the Haganah and the Palmach behind them in a confrontation with the British and force the British to leave our land. We declare independence and Western civilization has a crisis. The church has a crisis. The Catholic church has a crisis. The Pope doesn't know what to do. Because for centuries, they've been proving the validity of their faith based on the fact that the Jews are in exile and being persecuted wherever they go. Now the Jews are declaring independence in Palestine? A Jewish state in Palestine? What does that mean for Christianity? What does it mean for Catholicism? So they rationalize it. They say, well, wait a minute. Number one, they're not really in Eretz Yisrael. They're not in Bethlehem. They're not in Hebron. They're not in Beit El. They're not in Shiloh. They're not in Shechem. They're not in Yushalayim. Right? We didn't have Yushalayim. We didn't have Yushalayim between the walls. We didn't have Ir David. Number two, they say, it's us who gives them a state. We're having Christian mercy on them. They just went through a Shoah. They just went through a catastrophe. They just experienced the Holocaust in Europe. The least we can do is give them a bomb shelter. And because we are merciful Christians, we're going to practice our Christian mercy by giving those poor Jews who rejected our man-god a bomb shelter on the coast of the Mediterranean. But then something happened. In 1967, remember, from 1948 until 1967, the nation of Israel didn't really care. The fact that we didn't have Jerusalem, the fact that we didn't have Beit Lechem, the fact that we didn't have Hebron or Shechem or Beit El or Shiloh, didn't really bother most of Am Yisrael. We were happy to have a state after 2,000 years, even if it was only in Netanya and Nariya and Haifa and Chadera and Tel Aviv. Even if it was without the cradle of Jewish civilization. We were insensitive. Bemet, we were insensitive for 19 years. Most of us. Rav Tziyuda Cohen Cook, in Yom in 1967, finally expresses that he's not insensitive. That he's been bothered and pained by this since 1948. Or 1947 rather, from the time of the UN General Assembly partition plan which is not legally binding, everybody should know, and was only a recommendation, but, but we treated it like it was binding. because The partition plan was a recommendation 
in its own language by the General Assembly, not the Security Council, has no legal bearing whatsoever. The only reason we gave it any validity was because it legitimized the right to certain Israeli political figures to rule and it gave them more um, more credit, and we don't even follow it, but it, it gave them, it gave Mapai legitimacy to rule, because it created an illusion that diplomatic efforts and not an anti-colonial struggle against England led to the creation of the state. But anyway, Rav Tziyuda was against, he expresses that in 1967, and he asks, where's our Hebron? Where's our Jericho? Where's the other side of the Jordan? Where's Yushalayim? Should we give up on these places? No. And then what happened? A woman, even before Rav Tziyuda, has this outburst on Yom Ma'ut. A woman named Naomi Shemer climbed up to Mount Scopus and stood where Rabbi Akiva stood and looked down on the Temple Mount where Rabbi Akiva looked. And then she writes a song, Yushalayim Shel Zahav. And this song becomes the most popular song in the state of Israel and actually breaks through the stone hearts of the Jewish people. Actually raises our level of sensitivity for the fact that we don't have Jerusalem. That we are without the cradle of Jewish civilization. And makes the nation genuinely want Yerushalayim. And then history opens the door. And then we experience a war, a six-day war, with more open miracles than any war in history with the exception of when the sun stood still for Yoshua bin Nun. And we smashed the idol of Christianity. The biggest victim of the Six-Day War was Christianity. Because there was no rationalization for this. Because now the world experienced a biblical-style miracle according to the Jewish interpretation of the Tanakh. According to what we always believed and told ourselves would happen. And what Christianity claimed would never happen again. And since then, Western civilization has been trying to turn back the clock, to save itself, to force us to retreat from the territories we conquered, and still don't recognize Yerushalayim as our capital. Even on television shows, if you watch political TV shows, whether it's like The West Wing or House of Cards, any of these television programs about political figures, you know, about politics in, in the United States, when they refer to the president of China, like somebody, if the president or somebody wants to speak to the president of China, they say, get me Beijing on the line. They want to speak to Vladimir Putin or whatever his fictional character is in the TV show. They say, get me Moscow on the line. If they want to speak to the prime minister of England, get me London on the line. If they want to speak to the prime minister of Israel, get me Tel Aviv on the line. Not Yerushalayim, not Jerusalem. They won't recognize Jerusalem as their capital. Because they don't want this to have historic significance. They want to revert, they want to force us to get rid of the territories we conquered. They already took from us Sinai and Gaza. They want to take from us the Shomron, Yehuda, Yerushalayim and the Golan. Because if they can succeed in doing that, it means that the war didn't have historic significance. It means that their civilization can continue. That the Roman Empire can survive. So there was a Torah when we fought the Romans. You know, we don't have the history of our revolt against the Romans from the perspective of the freedom fighters, from the Kanaim, the Zealots, or the Sikari. We have the war, we know the war from the perspective of Josephus, 
Tacitus, Roman historian. Some of the rabbis, right? The Purushim, the Pharisees. But they talk about the war in a way after the war, especially after the Bar Kokhba revolt. Our rabbis, just like Josephus, they, they make an effort to separate between the Jewish people and our legitimate worldview, like our, our real worldview. They tried to say that the zealots were something not really representing the Jewish people, not really representing the Torah. That they were like an aberration. And they were, then they created all this trouble. And we don't want trouble. We don't want trouble with Rome. That was the position of that. That's how the rabbis had to write the Gemara. The Romans were ruling us and the Romans were looking. Like Josephus, the rabbis wanted to be very, very clear. We don't want war with Rome. Don't hurt us. Don't persecute us. And the truth was hidden. And the truth was hidden in the Torah of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, like his teacher, Rabbi Akiva, was an anti-Roman revolutionary. He's an anti-Roman agitator. To the point where he has to flee, becomes a fugitive. And then he goes into a cave. And he gets a new teacher in the cave. Rabbi Akiva has already been killed by the Romans. Who's the new teacher? Eliyahu Hanavi. Eliyahu Hanavi, who we also know as Pinchas ben Elazar ben Aharon HaKohen, was the model, the inspiration for the entire Zealot movement. Right? Where the, the movement was called the Kanai movement, the Zealot movement after Pinchas. And it's likely, we say Eliyahu Navi never dies, right? Pinchas we see throughout Sefer Shoftim. He's a character and he's, he's for centuries, Pinchas is Kohen Gadol and, and then later we know him as Eliyahu. And Eliyahu doesn't die, he takes a chariot up and he continues to walk among us. And it's likely that Eliyahu was one of the ideological leaders of the revolt against Rome. One of the spiritual figures perhaps even the teacher of Rabbi Yudah HaGlili, who is known as the founder of the Zealot movement. And, and Eliyahu teaches Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai the deepest secrets of the Torah in the cave. And hidden within the Zohar HaKadosh and the writings of the later giants of Kabbalah, we learn the 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 perspective of those freedom fighters. And that's the Torah that went through Rabbi Yudah Levi, through the Ramban, through the Maharal of Prague and the Ramchal and the Vilna Gon and through Rav Kook and all the way down to us here. And that's the Torah that we commemorate and celebrate on Lagba Omer.